0: So some of you might be following the Elizabeth Holmes story. She was an ambitious college dropout, and that sounds like an oxymoron, right? Ambitious and college dropout, but she was ambitious. She wanted to start a company, and out of her ambition, she dropped out of college to start this sort of biotech company that was centered around blood testing, Uh, She had a phobia of needles, and instead of needles being the apparatus to draw blood, she was working on technology that could draw blood with just a finger prick, and that would be enough to pull samples and test everything that was in your system. Well, it seemed like a good idea, and it seemed like a good idea to a lot of investors. Investors poured in hundreds of millions of dollars into this. She had Walgreens outfitting drugstores with a little sort of area in the back of their store that would be a come in, sit down, get your finger pricked, and then get your blood results. So Walgreens was buying into it. Other pharmacy chains were interested. People continued to invest and buildings were built, labs were built, and Elizabeth was being talked about as being the next Steve Jobs a woman billionaire starting this ultra-huge company. But there was one problem. She couldn't get the technology developed. And instead of admitting that she could not develop it, Elizabeth kept building a hypocritical facade of success. And all the while, the inside was starting to crumble. Not only was it crumbling, but there were lies that had to be propped up so that the investors kept coming. So much corruption. Today in our passage, we see Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And the first action item on his list is to deal with religious hypocrisy. He's going to confront those who have an image of depending on God and worshiping him, yet they have a heart that is far from him. And then after the confrontation, Jesus will instruct us on how to biblically fight against hypocrisy. So that will be the general trend of our message this morning. Now what Mark has been doing since the beginning of his book, if you're with us for the first time, he's laying an argument out for who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Savior. He's the one whom the saints have been anticipating because in the Old Testament, there are passages that speak and prophesy about a coming king. And they had longed for this king to come into Jerusalem and set them free from the Roman oppression. And so Mark is saying, as we look at the Old Testament prophecies, we see them coming true in Jesus himself. He's the fulfillment of those prophecies. He's here. And yet the expectation for an earthly kingdom has to be redirected because Jesus says, as we'll see later, talk about it later. He stands before Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's spiritual in nature. So he is the Messiah King. He's also the Son of God. So he's not just an individual who comes bringing salvation, although he is that. He is unique in his nature. He's divine in his nature. He is the Son of God in the flesh. So this morning, we're moving into chapter 11 with that in mind. So just point number 1 to the sermon here as we get started. Point number 1, Jesus's identity. Jesus's identity. Rich read through the passage here. It's now Sunday. Jesus has arrived just outside the city limits of Jerusalem. Now, what is important about Jerusalem? What's the significance of Jerusalem in Mark's gospel? If we've been following the mentions of Jerusalem, it's been mentioned in two ways. Number one, the religious leaders have come from Jerusalem up north to meet Jesus and to hear him talk and even to challenge him along the way. And so we see his opponents heading north to meet Jesus. But also in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus has made three predictions. He's said three times, I am going to Jerusalem to die. And so as you get here to chapter 11, here's the city, here's the name that's dropped. Jesus is right outside the place where he is going to die. The time of year is Passover, which means that Jewish pilgrims from all over the area, all the way up into Galilee, perhaps even further than that around the Mediterranean world, have made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover holiday. Josephus says that when Passover was going on, his numbers, which have sometimes been exaggerated, he said that 250,000 lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem during Passover. So you can imagine the hustle and bustle that's going on. Jesus is outside of Jerusalem right now. He sends his two disciples into a small nearby village to find a colt or a donkey upon which no one has ever sat. The reason that is included is because kings were given horses upon which no one had ever ridden. So when Jesus says, go find this donkey upon which no one has ever sat, there's a kingly hint that is going on there. They're to untie the donkey from a post, bring it to Jesus, and if anyone asks, hey, why are you doing this? They are to respond simply by saying, the Lord has need of it. Now, why would Jesus choose to arrive in Jerusalem this way? Why not just continue walking like he did past blind Bartimaeus, like he's been doing throughout his earthly journey? He's been on foot. Why would Jesus choose to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's because of this. The act of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is a fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah approximately 550 years earlier. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and following says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. There's the language of Messiah. Righteous and having salvation is he. And humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And notice what characterizes this Messiah. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. In other words, this king will come, but not with chariots and not with weapons of war. What will he do? He shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea. So, Imagine Jesus for just a moment, humbly knowing that he's about ready to fulfill this prophecy, that he's going to go into Jerusalem and by him and through him, a powerful peace, a kingdom is going to begin and it's going to extend around the world. It's going to cross borders. It's going to go to the nations. Jesus would tell Pilate, like I mentioned earlier, that his kingdom is not of this world. It's spiritual in nature, and it's about ready to start. In verses 4 through 6, the disciples go and find a colt. Some folks ask what they're doing. They tell them what Jesus had commanded them, so they bring the donkey back to Jesus. They place some garments on the back of this animal, and Jesus gets on the animal. He rides on it into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy From Zechariah 9. Now as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, it says in verse 8 that others were spreading their cloaks on the road. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And this is how we get Palm Sunday named. Then there were others who were shouting out others before him and others behind him. There's several things that they're shouting out. First, they're shouting out, Hosanna! And that's a prayer. It's a prayer which means, save us, save us, I pray. They're calling out to him with these prayers to save them from the Romans. Their shouts are followed up by a song from Psalm 118. And this psalm was a psalm that was sung to pilgrims who were ascending up into Jerusalem, preparing to go to the temple. And so they sang, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here's this crowd surrounding Jesus, singing that. And then notice what else they're saying. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. What is Mark doing with that last phrase? He's highlighting Jesus as Messiah, certainly. Bartimaeus has said, son of David, son of David, come and heal me. And now the crowds are saying, come and start the kingdom of David. They believe that Jesus is there to sit on the throne, to have a scepter in his hand and to wipe out the Romans. Okay, but just imagine now what's going on in Jesus's mind. He sees the excitement from his Jewish people, but he knows that as he is going into Jerusalem, he knows that his kingdom is not going to be physical in nature. He knows that soon their anticipation and their excitement for who Jesus is is going to be like a balloon that's popped. We know that this was a tension for Jesus. In Luke's gospel, You remember this, Luke chapter 19, it says that when he drew near and saw the city, what was he doing? He wept over the city saying, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace. So Jesus is in anguish as he's going in to Jerusalem. He hears the crowds, he hears the expectations that they have. He knows what they're anticipating. And yet he realizes, would that you know what would actually make for peace. And it's not a king coming to set up his earthly rule now. It's a king that would come and reach the greatest need that you have, your heart. So the story continues down into verse 11. Here we see Jesus entering Jerusalem. Now he's in the city walls. He makes his way through the city. You can imagine how packed it was with all the pilgrims who were there. And it says in verse 11 that he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. Now, what would we see if we were able to walk into the temple? The temple complex was impressive. Commentaries say that the temple grounds and the surrounding courtyards that were inside these walls, called the temple, were approximately covering 35 acres. It was like a miniature campus with the temple building, the temple proper, located right in the middle of this campus. And here was Jesus coming into this temple courtyard, this temple campus, and here he sees the center of Jewish religion. And he's soaking in all of the practices, all of the activities that are going on. He sees the patterns of people. He sees the leaders. He sees the rituals. He sees the animals. He's soaking it all in because this temple was part of his task as the Messiah. The center of religious practice would be part of his role. How do we know this? At the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we hear of a messenger who is coming. And Mark says this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And then it stops. That's speaking of John the Baptist. The rest of that verse says this, And the Lord whom you seek will do what? He will suddenly come to his temple. And so here is Jesus once again fulfilling the prophecies about himself and showing us that The temple belongs to him. It doesn't belong to people. The center of religion belongs to him. It doesn't belong to people. So, Jesus fulfills the prophecies at the end of verse 11. He leaves that day and goes back to Bethany for the evening. And we call that day one. Okay, so let's just look at 11 verses for a moment. What do we see here? What do we see in these 11 verses? Well, clearly, we see his identity. We see that he is the Messiah. We see that he is the son of David who is coming. We see that he is the fulfillment of Zechariah, the king that's riding on a donkey. We see that he is the Lord of the temple, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And that's why we embrace the Old Testament and don't discard it. It's kind of trendy among some folks to say, I can take the Jesus of the New Testament, but I can't take the God of the Old Testament. And as you study the New Testament, you realize that that is a religious, a biblical, a logical inconsistency. Because the Jesus of the New Testament is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. And so what we do when we come to the Old Testament scriptures is we see that it is continually pointing us forward to the greatness of Jesus. So we look at these prophecies and we sometimes scratch our head. And a lot of times, me included, the first question that I ask about those prophecies is when. And we get hung up with the when. But those prophecies aren't meant First and foremost, to be answered by the when. It's meant to be answered by the who. Who is the Old Testament continually pointing us towards? It's continually pointing us towards Jesus. Here is the prophesied Messiah who is here. He's here to fulfill all of the weight of the Old Testament for us. And so we don't unhook ourselves from the Old Testament. We hook ourselves more closely to it and appreciate it because Jesus' identity is there. Point number two, Jesus' judgment. Jesus' judgment. On day two, Jesus makes his way back into Jerusalem, the city where he will be killed. He had to have in mind what he saw the previous day. On the way into Jerusalem, he's hungry. In verse 13, it says that in the distance he saw a fig tree in leaf. A fig tree in early spring, grows leaves. And when it has leaves on it, it also has these nodules or buds underneath the leaves, not full figs. And these little buds can be eaten for those who don't mind, not as sweet as a fig, maybe a little more bitter in taste, but they can be eaten and Jesus was hungry. And so Jesus approaches the leafy tree, looks at it and everybody sees that there's leaves on it. But no fig buds are on the tree. And so Jesus says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, that's all there is to that part of the story. And at first glance, it seems as though hungry Jesus is throwing a little temper tantrum at the tree for not having any little fruit on it. You've seen little kids come along and it's snack time. And their snack is not in the pantry. And when they don't get their snack, they just get angry and they say some things that they shouldn't say. And some have looked at this, especially skeptics of scripture. And they come along and they say, what is Jesus doing? He's throwing this little temper tantrum. See, this makes no sense at all. It's bothered so many people throughout church history. So what's it here for? Well, the key to understanding this moment with the fig tree is to continue reading, and we will. But to just give you a handle on what's happening, I can tell you this as we move into it. Jesus has just found an object that displays the sin of hypocrisy. Jesus has just found an object that displays the the sin of hypocrisy. But let's keep moving through the text. Verse 15. We find Jesus coming into Jerusalem and Mark moves right into the order of events as though things are happening quickly. So Jesus goes back to the temple where he was the day before. This is not the temple building. Keep in mind this is the temple complex. Now scholars believe that Jesus would be in an area of the temple complex called Solomon's portico. It's one that was along an outside wall that had Large columns that extended 35 feet up into the air. Underneath was a patio-like setting. Those columns are very large, so large that it would take three men to hold their hands to encircle one of them. And this area was becoming a common place for people to meet. This is called the Court of the Gentiles. The outside area around the temple complex allowed the Gentiles to arrive, Gentiles could not pass the next wall. There were three circles, the court of women, and then the court of men, and then inside of that, the temple building proper. Gentiles were not allowed anywhere except the court of the Gentiles. So this area, though, it's supposed to be a place for prayer and meditation, a place for people to think about the greatness of God, to bring their prayer requests to him a place where people like Ruth the Gentile could come Rahab the harlot could come they would be able to get close to God even though they weren't Jews but they could at least come into the temple complex and pray and meditate on who God is but slowly over the course of time this area became a hot spot for making money and the religious leaders ooh they loved it And so Jesus walks in and he sees that this is not right. And we see that he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers. You see, people are coming into Jerusalem, and they have to exchange currency to drop off money in the temple. And there was a certain type of silver coin that they needed, and only those in the temple could offer that coin. So they had to buy that coin, which was, you know, increased in rate and price. Money was coming in. Leaders loved it. So Jesus looks at this and he says it's not supposed to be this way. He overturns the table of the money changers. He comes over and he flips over the seats of those who sold pigeons. You can imagine cages of pigeons just hitting the ground and wings starting to fly. In verse 16 it says that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple and This temple being a large complex, 35 acres, could be a shortcut for people. Hey, I just bought my groceries on this side of town. Instead of going all the way around the temple, I'll just take my bags right through the middle of the temple. Jesus says, no, this is a sacred place. You can't do that. Now, why did he do all of this? Why did he go in and make this scene? It's because worship to God was never supposed to be commercialized or secularized. It was never meant to be a marketing strategy, a means of financial revenue. It was meant to be reverent and holy and dedicated unto God. It was meant to be sincere. But Jesus looks around and he sees this pristine building and he sees the religious leaders in their garments all dressed up as though they're God-fearing individuals. And he sees the hypocrisy of it all. Like everybody's coming in. And he looks around and he says, the heart of worship is not here. After the dust settled, Jesus begins to teach the people. And his message relates to his actions. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You see that in verse 17. Temple was supposed to be a place of prayer. This again draws from the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. Notice what God had said. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's what the temple was supposed to be. And Jesus walks in and he sees it being anything but that. He sees all the religious garb, all the leaves of religious fruit being there. But the place is pulsing with people who want to make a profit, people who want to sell their goods, and have no intention of using that as a means of prayer. And so Jesus digs in a little bit further in verse 17, and he says, You have made it a den of robbers. Now think about it for just a moment. A den is a place where the lion, the bear, The thugs retreat to with their spoil. They go out on their mission, they kill, they conquer, they steal, they come back to their den. That's their place of safety. And so, with the religious leaders kind of perched on the back of his audience, I can imagine Jesus lifting up his eyes, making contact, eye contact with all of these men who have all of the right outfits and who are looked up to as the religious elites, and he looks at them and he says, you have made this place a den of robbers. Well, what happens? Verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes, remember, there they were listed in Jesus' prediction about his death. It's the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Okay, Jesus has just dropped the bomb. He's royally offended him. And notice what happens. When they hear what he says, they begin seeking for a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. All right, what do we find here? We find Jesus's judgment. His words are accurate. They are condemning in nature and they prick the conscience of those who are in sin. Jesus has just confronted the hypocrites and he has dropped truth and that truth is like a bomb. You are robbing and stealing from people. You are using people for your own gain. Now, kind of an aside... Andy and I were talking this last week, just a conversation, and I think some of the heaviness of weeks come and go because we get challenged with the question, what are we doing? One of my fears is that your leaders would buy into a worldly mindset of success your pastoral leaders would buy into a worldly mindset of success in which we go through the motions and put things together and get people all ramped up and hyped up and emotionalized. And you come in and you're like, wow, I just need another hit of that. And then Monday through Saturday, kind of go your way, do whatever, while we're working on another religious hit for you on Sunday. That would be success because as more people come in and fill up the chairs, boy, we could really feel good about our accomplishments. Andy and I are talking about this and a pastor had made this comment at a conference a long time ago. He said, shepherds should smell like sheep, not the golf course. Meaning they are to be intermingling with their people on a regular basis. Are sheep messy? Absolutely. They can stink sometimes. Especially when they get into a lot of junk. And when I look at Peter in his words to pastors, shepherd the flock that is among you. Be there with them. Love them. Don't have a domineering spe- spirit over them. Be with them. And I'm just kind of confessing that one of the fears is that we I could look back over my life someday and just say what were we doing we missed it the whole time we weren't shepherds among the sheep we were propping up a church for our own name feeling good about ourselves And it's what the religious leaders are doing here. And Jesus has come to them and he said, you're a bunch of religious hypocrites. You're back in your den right now. You've robbed people of what they really need. The religious leaders could not stand this. So end of chapter 11, verses 27 and following. Says they came again to Jerusalem. This is the following day. I'm going to come back and get the other verses in a little bit. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, here's that drumbeat again, those who are going to put him to death, here they are. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So now here's the question of authority. Jesus has just dropped judgment on them. And they're saying, who gives you the authority to drop that judgment on us? And Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority. He's claiming to have authority. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So he's setting them up for a trap. And Jesus is great at this. I mean, you just have to love how he responds to those who press in on him. So here's, here's the catch for them. Verse 31. They discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say that John's authority, his baptism was from heaven Jesus will say well then why didn't you believe him they rejected John and then the Pharisees are thinking if we say it's from man well they're afraid of the people for everybody held that John was a prophet meaning that John's authority came from God so they're stumped they can't answer the question in a pleasing way So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But here's the point. Jesus does have authority. He has authority, and we know that he has authority as we run throughout Scripture. We've seen authority in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Where does Jesus' authority come from? Not from man, not from whether or not men accept or reject him. His authority comes from the Father. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. And he, referencing God the Father, he put all things under his, that is Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills All in all, all things are under the feet of Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what is the big picture here? Jesus does have authority. And Jesus has the right to enter into any religious setting or any person's life and confront them. So... Let's move back in the passage. Verses 20 and 21. Jesus leaves. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Okay, so how are we supposed to understand this? Remember, the fig tree is an object lesson of hypocrisy. Jesus then goes into the temple that's loaded with hypocrisy. He confronts everyone in the temple. He drops the bomb there. He leaves, comes back the following day. There's the same fig tree, the hypocritical fig tree. And they say, it's withered up. It's done. It won't last. The temple has all the external signs that promise something special, all the signs of life, but when you inspect the tree, when you inspect the temple, the substance is lacking. Again, I just think of this, that Jesus issues this same warning. We could go to the churches in Revelation and look at the warnings there, especially the church at Sardis. Watch out for hypocrisy that can easily grow within the church. And here is Jesus coming to his people, coming to his churches, and and rightly speaking truth. He can see right through it. He can tell whether or not the hearts of mankind are given over to practices of leafy religion or the substance of him. So this is Jesus' judgment. And we all stand before Jesus He discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, even right now in this moment. And what does he see? All right, so we've seen Jesus' identity. We've seen his judgment. We know that the problem is hypocrisy. How would he have us move forward? What's the help? What's the hope as we move forward? In verses 20 to 25, we see two imperatives. So I'm listing them with point number three as simply faith and forgiveness. Faith and forgiveness. Look at verse 22. He says, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I may have shared this with you at some point. I still remember going on a family vacation. And at the time, we lived out east in Virginia. And our extended family lived in the Midwest, Illinois and Minnesota. And so we would have to travel across portions of West Virginia And I still remember as a little boy sitting in the back of our Buick Century station wagon. There's mom and dad up front. And we didn't have to wear seatbelts at all back then. So I'm in the middle and I scoot right up to the middle and I'm peering out the windshield. And we're going up and down. It may have been one of those interstates, 64. I don't know if 64 goes through West Virginia or not. And I remembered this verse as I looked at the mountains. And I thought to myself, hmm. Have faith to move mountains. God, I'm praying this internally with my hands on my parents' shoulders. It's just this impressioned memory that I have for some reason. God, I see this mountain over here to the right. You say to have faith and that mountain can be moved. And right now, God, I have faith that that mountain can be moved. And when it's moved... I am not going to be surprised because I have faith that you can do this. And so God, by faith, I want you to uproot that mountain and move it across the interstate and plop it right on top of that other mountain. And I will just say to others, it was because I had faith. That was going on in my heart. And I imagined all the boulders falling off the mountain and all the trees coming down and the dirt smattering across the interstate and it didn't happen. Mountain be moved. It didn't take place. So what's going on here? Is Jesus literally talking about moving mountains? This part has been taken in two ways. One way has been that we should pray with faith. Not a name it and claim it kind of faith, but a sincere faith in God that believes that he can, in his sovereignty, accomplish all of his purposes around the world. If it's God's will for you to endure through a disease all the way to the end and not heal you, he can give you the power and strength to endure through that. And if it's God's will for you to be healed of that disease, in his sovereignty, he can heal you of that disease. God can do anything. And in faith, we come to him and we bow down to his sovereignty and say, okay, okay, God, I trust you. That's one view. Second view pertains to God bringing in his kingdom. When he says in verse 23, truly, I say, whoever says to this mountain, and he would be referring to the temple mount at that point. Whoever refers or whoever says to this temple mount, be removed. Meaning, God, it's time now for this temple Judaism to be done. And for the new era and the new covenant and the new order of Christ and the Messiah to come in. If you pray according to that, it will happen. Either way, you can decide for yourself. Either way, Jesus is calling us to faith. To surrender to him in faith. Have faith in God. How does this push back against hypocrisy? Hypocrisy, remember, is wearing the facade. Hypocrisy is saying, I have to control my outcome so that the facade stands. A person, though, who biblically defeats hypocrisy is someone who truly trusts in God and his sovereign rule in their lives and in the world. The hypocrite says, I trust God, but then goes on yelling at his wife, or husband, because they can't get what they want. A pastor says, I trust God, but then he comes along and domineers over his people so that he gets what he wants. A child can say, I trust God, but then runs off in disobedience. A Christian can say, I trust God. But then go throughout the week with hardness and bitterness. And what Jesus is saying is, there's leaves that portray life. But underneath the leaves, when it comes to one's relationship with the Lord, there is really something significant that's lacking. Life is lacking underneath those leaves. And so Jesus says, you must have faith, not in yourself, to prop up your religious pristine, to prop up your kingdom. You must believe God. You must trust God. And when somebody trusts God, they're saying, I'm not in control of what happens this week. I'm going to follow you and your word into this week. So we've talked about what faith looks like. It means trusting God in His Word and saying, okay, Lord, I will follow you here and here and here, and here. I'll follow you into church this week this way. I won't be a pastor who aims to domineer. I'll aim to be a pastor who shepherds among the flock. I won't aim to be a spouse who's bitter and filled with criticisms and sarcasms and shouting. I'm going to aim to be a spouse who follows your word. I'm not going to be a child who says, I trust God and runs off in disobedience. I'm going to be a child who takes God's word and holds it closely and says, I'm going to live by this. That's faith. So are you living by faith? in God and in his word? Are you coming to him in prayer saying, yes, God, I wanna be surrendered to you? The first pushback against hypocrisy is faith in God. Second one is the imperative of forgiveness here. Look at verse 25, he says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Why would Jesus talk about forgiveness? He would talk about forgiveness because hypocrites can't forgive. Sins committed against them damage their image. Their kingdom has been attacked. Their den is in danger. And so often the hypocrite makes the offender pay through subtle forms of punishment. You hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. You hurt me, I'm going to abandon you. Forgiveness is hard, but it's what God calls us to. And as Christians, we know that forgiveness is at the core of our new life in Christ. Some scripture references here. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you kept track of our sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Jeremiah 31, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. He's speaking of the new covenant, the new era that Christ is bringing in. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. New Covenant, Ephesians 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, exercising this kind of forgiveness towards one another as God in Christ has done so to you. Colossians 3, Bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. See, Christians know forgiveness at the deepest level. So then it would follow that if someone has committed a sin or a few sins against us, we would also be compelled to forgive them. And if we don't, or if we say we can't, and yet we call ourselves Christians, then it's as though we have the leaves on the tree, yet there are no figs. There's no fruit, only hypocrisy. Let's pray.